Thank you for joining us for another lesson from God's Word. The West Huntsville Church of Christ at Providence is located at 1519 Old Monrovia Road, Northwest, Huntsville, Alabama, 35806. Anytime you're in the Huntsville area, we hope you'll stop in and be part of our worship. Sunday morning worship is at 9 o'clock, with Bible class immediately following. Sunday evening worship is at 5. Midweek Bible study is held Wednesdays at 7. But we're going to continue in Nehemiah, and most likely by the end of next week, um, we'll go ahead and wrap up Nehemiah, then James has a couple of lessons he wants to do in summary uh, of the book as a whole. So today, um, we're actually assigned uh, chapter 10. And I'm going to be honest, when I first looked at chapter 10, I said, oh good, a book that the first you know, half of it is a big long list of names. I'm going to spare every one of you and myself, and I will not be attempting to read that list of names this morning, and you're welcome. But there are some things that I want to say about this list. Um, And it was funny, because as often happens, when you look at something on the surface, you go, oh, I have to teach a class on just this? But then as you go into it more and more, you start seeing what's actually there and why it's there. If you recall from last week, James walked through chapter 9, and in chapter 9, it starts with um, Ezra and Nehemiah calling the people together. They separate themselves from the foreigners. They all gather together um, inside the city. They're near the temple, and there's a long prayer that, that gets offered, and it's unfortunately a prayer that isn't unique in the history of Israel. And it basically goes through and recounts all the ways they've messed up, for lack of a better term. It's definitely a prayer that is glorifying God and acknowledging who He is, but at the same time, they're acknowledging the numerous ways throughout history that they've failed. kind of think that's interesting because a lot of those failures are not necessarily the fault of the people that were standing there listening at that moment. But they were still acknowledging how they had gone down the wrong path, how they had not done what God asked them to do, and the fact that that's the reason why their land is now filled with foreigners and they are finding themselves basically working as servants and slaves in their own land, land that had been promised to them by God. And at the end of the prayer, and I did actually go back and listen online to James' class last week because it was right as he got to the very end and the bell rang. And I can't remember, I'm not sure he actually even read the very last verse as he was walking through this. Because at the end of Nehemiah 9, verse 38, and because of all this, we make a sure covenant and write it. Our leaders, our Levites, and our priests seal it. which to me seems a little out of order because they're talking about how they seal it, but we got to go a little bit before we get to where we find out what they were actually sealing. And it jumped out at me because this phraseology is unique. Um, You can find the exact phrase in the New King James Version of make a covenant 19 times 
And variations of that move the words around. Exactly make a covenant 19 times. We know that covenants were a big deal. God made covenants with his people. The people would make covenants. Sometimes it's used in reference to people that are forming an alliance between two groups. They would make a covenant between themselves. We find it in all the places you would expect. Genesis, Exodus, Joshua, First and Second Samuel, Ezra, Job, Ezekiel, Hosea. Over and over we find make a covenant. However, this doesn't say make a covenant. This says make a sure covenant. That we find one place. And we're reading it. Make a sure covenant and write it? Covenant and write it? That was the part that initially jumped out at me here. Only here. Now I'm not going to claim to have done a perfectly exhaustive search. But reviewing it, at least on the surface, this is pretty unique. Because they didn't just make a covenant and say it. They made a covenant and they wrote it. Now, maybe this is because of the the class Bruce has been teaching on Wednesday nights with Revelation. (laughs) But in my mind, I kept seeing, oh, they wrote this down and it says they sealed it. And that's imagery that's used in the descriptions a lot of places in Revelation, right? This was written and it was sealed. So, as we look at chapter 10, I think the first thing we need to realize is that what's happening here is, at least in some ways, a little bit unique. Because the people have come together, and you've got a lot of different groups, and they've separated themselves from the foreigners, which is where a lot of these problems began, because they didn't do that the way they were instructed, admittedly quite some time ago. I also think we need to put in context when this is occurring. Um, When I did the, what did I call it, the intro to the intro, when we started looking at Nehemiah, you have to realize these events are occurring at basically the chronological end of what we have as the Old Testament. This is right before we're going to have hundreds of years of, well, not a whole lot, or silence. And they've all gathered together. They've separated themselves. They've listened to this prayer. And now they're sealing a covenant. Not just a covenant, a sure covenant. And they're writing it. So chapter 10 starts with, Now these who placed their seal on the document were, And this is a pretty long list, all right? If I did my math right, there's over, or counted right, there's over 50 people. There's a lot more names than that mentioned, but you have a few places where it's, you know, Nehemiah, son of, son of. They weren't necessarily signing it, but Nehemiah was. And so we find here over 50 people that are sealing this document, and they're from a number of different groups. So the first name that's mentioned is we have Nehemiah himself as one of the ones who's sealing this document. In the New King, King James, the translation there clearly points out that he's the governor. Which is a somewhat interesting chain of events that has occurred, because where was Nehemiah when we started? He was the cupbearer. 
to the king. And if you recall, he got some bad news, and he didn't like it, and it bothered him, and the people in Jerusalem were in distress, and he put together a plan, and that plan ended up before the king, and the king blessed him through God, and now he's listed as the governor, the governor of Jerusalem. Could be wrong, but I'm guessing to just about any Jew, that would be considered a pretty major upgrade to go from being a servant, even if in the household of the king, to now being the governor over a place as important as Jerusalem. So Nehemiah signs this document. Then we find that the priests sealed this document. We also find that the Levites and their brethren sealed this document. We should probably pause here for a second because this is an important one because sometimes it can be confusing. I think it's worth remembering. There's a reason we have both the priests and the Levites, right? Because there's an order to this a little bit that's worth mentioning, Um, especially because we're talking about so much about the temple and the city's now been restored. The temple is now secure. The temple had already been restored, but now the walls around Jerusalem itself, so the people are not being constantly harassed probably going to say this wrong, so correct me, Glenn. It should be so simple. All priests were Levites. Not all Levites were priests. Okay? So, Levites means the tribe. These are the people we're talking about. And if you recall, they didn't get a land inheritance like everyone else, which is why you're going to see as we go through 10, the rest of the people are taking them lots of things because it's the job of everyone else to take care of the Levites. Because the Levites have a, if you will, more important job than farming and providing for their family. They're taking care of the temple. So in signing this document, you have the priests, you have the people that are actually taking care of the worship in the temple and the Levites. And we're going to see this as we go through 10. There's a lot of jobs that Levites were due that were not necessarily being priests. Gatekeepers at the temple. Levites. Singers. Levites. People that would take care of all these stores and things that were brought to the tribe in these storehouses that we're going to read about that had to be filled up, well, and quite frankly, then managed. And most of these are being filled with things that are perishable. That takes a little bit of attention to detail. Right? Those were the Levites. But we find signing this is not just the priests, but the Levites and their brethren. And then also, I don't know, perhaps this is, to me, one of the most interesting ones, is then it just simply says, verse 14 the leaders of the people. And there are a lot of names. And if you go back and recall kind of where we started when Nehemiah first got to Jerusalem and they started working to rebuild the wall, which by the way, they did incredibly fast in my opinion. (laughs) I want to hire Nehemiah construction, right, on my next project, because I'm still amazed how fast they were able to get that wall rebuilt. But he involved as many people as he could, or as many people as the job needed. He didn't start with a group of dedicated men of a couple hundred and start at one end of the wall and then slowly work their way all the way around it. He distributed the work. He had people working in charge of the sections in front of their own houses, 
working in front of gates that were particularly important to them or whatever group in society they were important of. He spread it out and everybody was working in parallel to get this done, which is how they did it so quickly. The other interesting thing is he involved as many people as he could. So in one of the lessons I did when I was helping James kick this off, I gave everybody a number of things I wanted you to think about with the leadership of Nehemiah as you go throughout the entire book. And involving as many people in that plan as possible is definitely, my opinion, some pretty brilliant leadership because now they all have a vested interest. Who wants to see this wall get done? Lots of people, not just this group of 400. What do you not have when you're finished? 400 people walking around going, I rebuilt this wall for you and this is how you treat me? No, they all helped build the wall, which means they all now own it. One of the things I don't think I'd ever heard mentioned until I heard Glenn mention it in a lesson one time was that creation is the purest form of ownership. You want them to take ownership in the defense of their city? Let them create that defense and work on it and be part of it. We also have an interesting cross-section where we have Nehemiah representing the secular government. He's been sent, allowed to go do this by the king. He's part of sealing this document. You have the priests, the leaders of the religious law, religious government, if you will, the overseers of the worship in the temple. They're also agreeing to this. And then you have the Levites. They're also set apart a little bit, but they're going, yep, we're, we're down with this as well. And then you have the people as a whole. You have this wonderful cross-section of those who are involved all being part of sealing this document. And again, it, it just jumped out at me as interesting that we get all the way to the end of this time period and now we see this covenant not just being spoken or said among the people, but it's being sealed even by the people. Right? What isn't happening here is Nehemiah standing up saying, you see this document? I wrote out what we're going to do now and I've signed it, so this is what we're going to do. Right? That's coercion through authority. That's not what happened. You don't even have Nehemiah and Ezra standing up saying, nope, this is what we're going to do. I agree with him. I'm in charge of the temple. He's in charge of the city. We've put all this stuff back together. This is what we're going to do. Nope. That's not what happened either. It's not even just, well, we've got you know the civil government and the local church leaders and these other people that are important that help take care of the temple because you know that's basically the big part of the city and that's why we're here. We don't even have just them. It's and the people, right? And we've reached a point in history where they're not just making this covenant up or standing up and proclaiming it. They're leaving evidence that can be held against them later. They're writing it down. It's not a matter of when this generation is gone and nobody remembers what we're doing today. We're right. That's the only reason you write something down, right? You don't just tell people what you want in a will. You write it down. Because now it's there and it's sure. And it's something you can go pick up after the fact and read it. Right? When America was founded, we had sent lots of people to the king to complain. Right? There had been lots of representatives that had gone. And they were usually abused, thrown in jail, sent home packing. 
There have been numerous rounds of this where people had gone and tried to verbalize by speaking what their complaints were. But when we'd had enough, what did the colonists do? Okay, at least a small group of them that then got everybody else on board, depending on how you want to look at history. They wrote it down. They made a declaration. And they signed it. And some of them went so far as signing it really big because they knew the king had bad eyesight. And they sent him a copy. And here we see them making this, this declaration and it's written. So when we think about these written documents, it reminded me of a, I'm going to digress a little bit here, of a story. And I, I shared part of this with Glenn a few weeks ago. But it just made me thinking about wills and these written documents and the importance of this being sealed and how important it is that it's being signed. And it made me think of somebody in my own family's lineage who I never met, and quite frankly, I'm still not sure what R and N stand for in his name. His name was R. N. Irving. And the only thing I know about him is that he was supposedly a distant cousin. I haven't been able to prove that yet. But he left his entire estate to my great-grandmother's sister, my great-aunt, great-great-aunt, one of those. His whole estate, which is pretty unusual because everything I can find is she was a little odd. There was an incident, that's how it's referred to, when she was about 12. My grandfather's version of the story was she's kicked in the head by a cow and had a plate in her head. Not the kind of surgery you want done around 1910. Definitely from the stuff I do have, I can tell you she was peculiar. <laughs> but she inherited this gentleman's estate. She had been living in his house, basically taking care of the house, running things. She ran the dairy. She clearly loved dairy cows for some reason. I have lots of old paperwork. And my grandmother gave me several big boxes one time. She didn't know what it was. They were moving. She just wanted it out of the house. And it's nothing but old letters. I have all the ledgers from this farm from the teens. 1914, you want to go see who bought what and how many pounds of nails at the store that then got paid off when the cotton was sold? I have the records. I don't know why you'd want it. I have countless bank books of accounts that were opened. Clearly when they sold their harvest, they put their $150 in it. That's a lot of money in 1917. And then four months later, it would be completely closed. So Irving leaves his entire estate to the kind of odd gal that's been taking care of the house for him. Best I can tell, he never married, never had any kids. The will that left her all of this, and by the way, this was a non-trivial estate. Um, I wish I could say that somehow families propagate this. This is why I don't get real worried when people say tax the rich, because money does not last. In 1921, Irving had, I think it was $161,000 in his bank account in late November, when he had sold most of his cotton. I'll let you do the math on what that would be worth today. Trust me, that was gone quickly. But he had about 1,200 acres in cultivation. South of Greensboro towards Demopolis. <laughs> so as you can imagine, when he passed away, no wife, no kids, and a will that left it all to the kind of crazy lady, some family members came out of the woodwork. And I've just recently realized I have all that documentation of what transpired, of the multiple court cases and the other things that happened. I have countless letters from lawyers in Tuscaloosa because she was peculiar that's usually to the effect of, why didn't you use the bus ticket I sent you? We need to discuss this matter. The judge is mad. Why is this dragging out the execution of this will? Turns out it ultimately went to trial. There was a closer cousin 
that lived in Pennsylvania. There is a point to this, I I promise. There's a closer cousin who lived in Pennsylvania that contested the will. They had a trial. Greensboro, Alabama, Hale County. I don't know why. The farm's mostly in Perry County, but all this stuff seems to have transacted in Hale County. And she lost. She lost. Now, I even have the letters written in the hands of his lawyer recounting, well, I gave him the will drawn out the way he wanted it. He took the will home. There are witnesses that testified to the fact, yes, I saw him with the will. He came home and signed it. He then said he's going to go over to this neighboring farm and get this gentleman's two sons to be the witnesses um, that he had signed this will. She lost. She instantly appealed. She lost because the witnesses, those who had sealed this document, changed their story. Now, this part I can't prove. But I'm pretty sure the cousin that already doesn't live here and doesn't care a whole lot about anything other than the money probably had a little bit of influence with the local folks that own the farm next door with, hey, I can give you a great deal on this. I just want the cash. We're going to sell this stuff. It'd be great if, you know, this came to me instead of you. I don't know if that's what happened. But in my version, when I write the book, that's what happened. So she appealed. What I did not realize until a couple months ago was this got appealed all the way to the Alabama Supreme Court. Years later, it takes a while. It doesn't happen overnight. And ultimately, the reason she ended up with this estate, the house, the dairy, the cattle, he left everything to her. Most of it had actually been squandered by the time this was settled in court. She was not a great manager. But the reason she ended up with all this was because of those signatures on the will. That's why it was important. And basically the opinion from the Alabama Supreme Court says, wait a minute, if I have two versions of testimony, one that was given at the time, the signature, and a version that's given later in court, then sitting there now saying, I don't know what I was signing, the one that was given at the time carries the precedence and the weight that's why you have them sign it. If they didn't know what they were signing, they shouldn't have signed it. By signing it at the time, they were saying, yes, we attest that this is his signature on his will that he brought before us. That's why you signed them. And ultimately, the whole thing was overturned and there was no further recourse because it had already been decided by the highest court in the state. There's no federal court here to, to get involved. This is a simple you know, matter of probating a will. which I find interesting that two witnesses, that's all it took, transferred an entire fortune. I mean, I don't know how else to describe it. Now, it pretty quickly fell apart. I don't know of a single family member that still owns any of that 1,200 acres, with the exception of a couple small pieces that my great-grandmother's sister's family put in a trust that's just growing trees and can never be sold. And I think that's less than 100 acres of the total. But sealing a document, even today, is a pretty important thing. So the fact that we have not just a couple of witnesses that are signing this saying, yes, the people are all agreed, this is what we said, this is what we believe, but you have over 50 people 
representing all the interests involved. Not just the two guys next door that can be easily manipulated later with, hey, wouldn't you like to get your hands on that nice farmland? Wouldn't you like to get your hands on that nice house over there? But instead, we have the civil authorities, the religious authorities, and the people themselves all agreeing to what they're putting in this document. Now, what I find amazing is that we're told that before we even find out what they put in the document (laughs) or what it was that was being sealed, which I think is kind of uh, amazing because usually we think of the signatures as always going at the end. But this is almost a case of where we're going, hey, this is important and we agree with this and we're going to state that right from the beginning and here we go. Because that's actually what's listed first. So now that we've made it through 27 verses of signatures sealing this document, let's look at what it was that they were actually attesting to that was so important that it needed to be spelled out like this. And in verse 28, we start with the covenant that was sealed. Now the rest of the people, the priests, the Levites, the gatekeepers, the singers, the Nethim, and all those who separated themselves from the people of the lands of the law of God, their wives, their sons, and their daughters, everyone who had knowledge and understanding, These joined with their brethren and nobles and entered into a curse and an oath to walk in God's law, which was given by Moses, the servant of God, and to observe and do all the commandments of the Lord, our Lord, and his ordinances and his statutes. So we already have this list that includes all these leaders of the people and then the leaders of the people themselves. But then we find out that the rest of the people... These are these people that have separated themselves out. They've gotten the foreigners out. These are the, these are the Israelites. And it specifically calls out everyone who had knowledge and understanding. <laughs> what is he basically saying? Being of sound mind, do this day. Everyone who had knowledge and understanding. Everyone who was capable of comprehending what was going on here was called together. Why? It's a pretty grave thing they're entering into. In 29, they are covenanting, I'm not sure that's a real word, but I'm going to go with it, to walk in God's law, which was given by Moses, the servant of God, and to observe and do all the commandments of the Lord our God and his ordinances and his statutes. Again, let's remember the timeline of when this is occurring. The vast majority of the Old Testament, the exception of what we find more or less in in Genesis, starts with the Exodus. When we get to Nehemiah, we're at the end where it's about to get quiet before the New Testament. Yet we find at the end, they're returning all the way back to the beginning. Not, we're going to go back to the way we were doing this before, you know, the Babylonians showed up, you know, that put us in all this mess. Not, we're going to return back to where we were when the Assyrians showed up, because, yeah, we were kind of messing up when we did some stuff there. Um, We just need to go back, you know, Daniel had it figured out before that. They're going all the way back. They're going all the way back to Moses 
and observing the law, the commandments, and the statutes and the ordinances that were given. So in 9, they've acknowledged all the ways they've messed up and the things they've done wrong. And the covenant that comes out of that, well, we just said it, that understanding, those who heard all these things and that understand that is, no, we need to go back. Not just back to what got us in trouble. We need to go all the way back to what we were actually instructed to do. Thirty. We would not give our daughters as wives to the people of the land, nor take their daughters for our sons. It's interesting that they've realized this was the key thing that started all of the other problems. They've, re- they've realized that this was really the, the thing when they went to possess the land that they were told to do, that they didn't do, that caused all the other problems. They have done an excellent job of a root cause analysis. Of figuring out, they've asked why enough times to figure out, I see some engineers chuckling, they know what I'm talking about, all the way back to what it is that led to where we are right now. So not only are they going to separate their, their the, the people of the land's daughters from their sons and their daughters from being wives of the people of the land, but in 31... If the people of the land brought wares or any grain to sell on the Sabbath day, we will not buy it from them on the Sabbath or on a holy day. And we would forgo the seventh year's produce and the exacting of every debt. So this debt thing's important because if you remember, Nehemiah has previously, previously had to deal with the issue of there were Israelites exact, exacting ridiculous amounts of usury from other Israelites. Ribbit. I'm not turning into a frog or rabbit. or I think it was pronounced rabbit, wasn't it? I've never heard anybody actually pronounce it, so I'll take James' version on that. They're dealing directly with the things that have been brought to them that they've been doing that they shouldn't have. So it's interesting. They're going all the way back to Moses, and they're even acknowledging that they're going to remember the Sabbath. Verse 32. And we made ordinances for ourselves to exact from ourselves yearly one-third of a shekel for the service of the house of God. Okay, hold on. There's some interesting stuff in this. It's only a few words, but listen to what's actually said here. We also made ordinances for ourselves to exact from ourselves yearly one-third of a shekel for the service of the house of God. This is something that the people are deciding needs to happen. Right? So this is another, this is another one of those... I don't know whose idea this was or who implemented this, the way this is being told. Um, it just says that the people have done this. And I don't know if you've ever worked in a group or a, or a large team... But the best way to get a plan to actually be executed is to let the group that has to execute it come up with the plan. Right? What's the goal? Hey, God says we have to take care of the temple and that we're supposed to raise this money. Great. Hey, you know what? We need to do that. Here are the rules we're going to put in place for how we do that to make sure this gets done. And they're coming up with this themselves. 
They're not being told you will lay by this much every week, which will account to that much total that you'll do with this other stuff. I don't know exactly what ordinances, exactly how they went about doing this, but I do know that they came up with it themselves, which means they own that plan. I've seen this happen for myself. I've, I've used these examples before, but I got put in charge of a team one time that I knew nothing about how to fix their problems. But when I showed up on the first or second day and we were having our little beginning of the shift meeting, I didn't say, here's the plan for how we're going to fix it. I said, here's what we've been told we have to do. How do we do that? I don't know how to get there. What do we need to do? And they came up with a plan. And my job was to go, seems reasonable. And let them do it. And I think it's amazing that between Ezra and Nehemiah and all sorts of stuff, we don't see them trying to grab power and be the most important person with, I came up with a plan and told the people, here's how we're going to accomplish all of this. What we see is that they made ordinances for ourselves. And I, and I get that the way this is spoken This is likely coming from either Nehemiah or Ezra based on the prayer we just had and the way the rest of this goes. But given everyone who sealed this plan, there was agreement. And everyone understood, yep, this makes sense. This is what we're going to do. It's also kind of interesting that they said it was going to be um, one-third of a shekel. Because I'm no expert on the temple tax, But the temple tax was paid by Israelites and Levites, which went towards the upkeep of the Jewish temple. This is straight from Wikipedia, by the way, so I know it's true. Typically, the priests were exempt from it. So, in later centuries, a half shekel was adopted as the amount of the temple tax. Although here in Nehemiah, we see that it's given as a third of a shekel. Um, Exodus 30, verse 13 This is what each one who is registered shall give. Half a shekel according to the shekel of the sanctuary. The shekel is 20 giras. Half a shekel is an offering to the Lord. So I'm not sure why it was changed to a third of a shekel. If they were perhaps in such a plight, still trying to recover from the fact that they were so exposed and vulnerable for so long. Perhaps because there were enough people that the upkeep could be maintained without it. Perhaps there were fewer Levites at this time, so there was less required to maintain them. I, I can't tell you why. Um, I also can't tell you exactly how much a shekel was. Because there were lots of shekels that were used in different towns, and shekel basically just means a weight, as best I could tell, which means it had slightly different meanings in different places. A Tyrian shekel was somewhere around 13.1 grams of pure silver which had a spot value of $28, which is about $4 higher than it is right now, would put it at about 12 bucks for half a shekel. So it was probably closer to 10 and this was a third. But they're coming up with this plan. The leaders are saying, here, here's how we're going to do this. And if you pay close attention to what's actually happening here, is you have what appears to be the religious leaders saying, here, here's what we have to achieve You have the governor present as part of all this who's saying, okay, well, here's the civil law that we're going to put in place. We're we're merging those. We're making sure they go together because we've been invaded, right? We've got a king that's not going to be real happy 
but I'm the governor, which means the governor has a lot of control over how taxation is done in his district. And they're making sure that what they're putting in place on the civil side is going to line up and achieve the things that need to happen on the religious side and that the temple is going to be taken care of. You know, for most of the Old Testament, the Mosaic Law was both, right? And now we have this odd time period where it's not exactly the case anymore. There's somebody else that gets to decide some of these things from a civil point of view rather than just the governor. Okay, so they're collecting this this tax for the temple, a third of a, a shekel, in verse 33. What is this for? For the showbread... For the regular grain offering, for the regular burnt offering of the, of the Sabbaths, the new moons, and the set feast, for the holy things, for the sin offerings to make atonement for Israel, and all the work of the house of God. We cast lots among the priests, the Levites, and the people for bringing the wood offering to the house of of our God, according to our fathers' houses, at the appointed times of year, to burn on the altar of the Lord, the Lord our God, as it is written in the law. So again, we see another example of they're now making sure that those things that are required in the law are being taken care of, and that they're being assigned so that these duties get carried out. 35 begins again with, and we made ordinances. We made ordinances. And it means just what you think. It's a law, a rule, a statute. They made ordinances to bring the first fruits of our ground and the first fruits of all fruit of all trees year by year to the house of the Lord to bring the firstborn of our sons and our cattle as it is written in the law and the firstborn of our herds and our flocks to the house of our God, to the priests who minister in the house of our God, to bring the first fruits of our dough, our offering, the fruit from all kinds of trees, the new wine and oil, to the priests, to the storerooms of the house of our God, and to bring the tithes of our land to the Levites. For the Levites should receive the tithes in all our farming communities. And the priests and the descendants of Aaron shall be with the Levites when the Levites receive tithes. And the Levites shall bring up a tenth of the tithes to the house of God, to the rooms of the storehouse. Let's go ahead and read 39. For the children of Israel and the children of Levi shall bring the offering of the grain, of the new wine and the oil to the storerooms, where the articles of the sanctuary are, where the priests who minister and the gatekeepers and the singers, and we will not neglect the house of our God. So again, why are they making ordinances to follow the law? They've already made this covenant saying that they're going to follow the law of God, yet we find them making additional ordinances. Again, it's because the Mosaic law was intended to be both religious and civil. It was the law. 
they now have a governor who's been sent by the king. Because, you know, now we're at this period of the captivity where all that stuff in chapter 8 that they were pointing out that happened from their inability to do what it was they were instructed to do, everything that's a result from that sin of not following the commands they were given. So the Mosaic law is no longer the law of the land. Unfortunately, Artaxerxes kind of thinks he has something to say about that. But here in this space where Nehemiah has found favor with the king, and quite frankly has delivered for the king a great city where there once was ruin, has found a way to, it appears, maintain that relationship despite Sanballat and all those that would like to see Jerusalem stay weak. But they're still making sure that even because of that, well, here's the rule in Jerusalem. We're still going to make sure the temple gets taken care of. Because we're talking about basically the temple tax and the things that are going to be given because of their faith. There's still taxes that are leaving town that have to be collected as well. There's an expectation that to maintain that favor, there's other taxes. What I find interesting is I don't see them using that as an excuse. I see them still making sure that everything the law requires is being done. And it's as if they're acknowledging, well, and because of our sin, we realize, you know, there's still other taxes that, you know, if Nehemiah isn't sending taxes back up to higher headquarters, they're not going to be happy. And again, I think that's why it's so interesting that when we find this being led, it's both Nehemiah and Ezra who are there. The head priest and the head of the civil government. And it also means that what they're doing here is they are choosing to bind Mosaic law on themselves. They are acknowledging everything that had gone wrong and that this is what they need to be doing. They're not trying to make excuses. And it's all the people and it's sealed. And it's sealed with a large cloud of witnesses that people are going to remember from each family for a long time. I debated whether or not to go ahead and get into 11 today. But after reviewing 11 and 12, I decided now I'm going to do those together. And we'll cover that next week and wrap up Nehemiah. Let's have a word of prayer before we dismiss. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your foresight and your wisdom in setting forth times like this when we can come together and study your word. We thank you for your providence that allows us to come here today. We thank you for the wisdom of our elders for seeing forth the sad times when we may come together as a family and study your word. Father, we thank you for the incredible example you've given us of men like Nehemiah. Men who were able to stand up in the face of uncertainty, in the face of challenges that could so easily be used as reasons to not move forward and do your will. But they carried forward anyway with a conviction and a zeal that should be an example for all of us. Father, thank you for the reminder of your mercy and the mercy you showed the Israelites time and time again. And Father, thank you for that same mercy and so much more being extended to us through your Son. It's in his name we pray.
Amen. James isn't here, but don't run in the hall. We hope you have enjoyed this lesson from God's Word. If you would like to continue your study of New Testament Christianity, please send your name and address to World Bible School, West Huntsville Church of Christ, 1519 Old Monrovia Road, Northwest, Huntsville, Alabama, 35806. Or if you prefer, send your name and address by email to wbs at westhuntsville.org.